Welcome to the Rabbi and the Reverend, featuring Rabbi Daniel Cohen and Reverend Greg Dahl, broadcasting live from Stanford, Connecticut. Today, they will begin a lively conversation about faith, life, and culture from their respective faith backgrounds. Between the two of them, they represent about 40 years of experience serving synagogues and churches. But more important, they share a friendship and many faith convictions. And now, the Rabbi and the Reverend. Welcome back to another uh, edition of the Rabbi and the Reverend. It's been a little while. My name is Rabbi Daniel Cohen. I'm here with the revered Reverend Gregory Dahl, who's coming off a amazing holiday season. How are you? Good to see you, Rabbi. Doing as well as anybody can be doing. Glad That's pretty to be good. here. Happy <laughs> about this uh, entry into a new year. Hope you're having a happy Hanukkah season. Definitely appreciate the Hanukkah season, and uh, I know Hanukkah is a big holiday, but Christmas—that's the peak. That's like that's like reaching the reaching the top of the mountain for you. How was it for you? You climbed for forty days. Uh, it was good. Good season. It's always so busy. Uh, the Advent season, and you know, of course, culminates with Christmas. But I will say, this year felt different in a good kind of way, Rabbi, and that is that. After, you know, whatever, three years, we finally were back to where we were pre-COVID with with people coming to, you know, the services and they were all full and, you know, vibrant. And it was just lovely to see everybody out again for the for the holiday or holy day of Christmas. Right. It was wonderful, wonderful just to be together again. It was lovely. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I mean as far as, um, you know, just. We felt that even on the holidays this year, for a sense of just exhaling, most people were in synagogues. We still had a little bit of the outdoor, but there's definitely a feeling of, ah, we're back um, for the most part. And um, it was definitely a very joyous season. I mean, we um, were also blessed during this time to have a new granddaughter that was born. Oh, new light. congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Her name is Ruthie. Ruth. All right. Yeah, and she, um, it's great. She's named after my uh, mother-in-law, Diane's mom, whose Hebrew name was Rivka, Rebecca. However, um, because of the fact that she was known by her name, Ruth, we're calling her Ruthie. And she's uh, like 15 days old, 16 Ooh, days old. Fantastic. Hot off the press. And she's actually living at our home because uh, my daughter, who lives in Stanford with her husband, um, is kind of convalescing at our house for about five, six weeks. So I see her all the time. Oh, how what a what a gift that is to you! It is, it is. I'm home and Ruthie's there to greet you, huh? No, it's amazing. Peace, thanks to you. So it was, <laughs> it was very much a, a a happy Hanukkah season for you. It was, you. it was wonderful, and um, you know, with new light comes new hope, and. Uh, I think it really meant a lot, of course, for my wife. You know, when you hold a baby, that itself is amazing. But when you think about that it's named after somebody that you love, there's just this intertwining of souls that's taking place. And I could feel it when my wife held the baby after she was given her name. The way it works in the Jewish world is that 
we don't do the naming right away. My son-in-law came to uh, the synagogue about three, four days later and then named her after he got called to the Torah in a public way. And then, but, but knowing that this is baby Ruthie, you know, named after, we also, by the way, had her pose with a candy bar, baby Ruth. She looks great. <laughs> Fantastic. So the naming, it's a ceremony, correct? There's a naming ceremony that goes on. It is a naming ceremony, actually. I mean, it's not long, but you get called to the Torah. And then um, well, there's a special prayer that we give her officially her Hebrew name at that time. So let me back you up and ask the question. So when you say they are called, explain to our audience, particularly the Christians, obviously, what it means to be called to the Torah, Rabbi. Describe that for them. Okay. So what that means is, is that when I say the word Torah, I'm referring to the Torah scroll that is on parchment um, written by a scribe. It's the five books of Moses, beginning from the book of Genesis, all the way to the book of Deuteronomy. In the Jewish faith, we believe that that's the word of God who gave that to Moses, and it's our eternal North Star. And we read it through a yearly cycle to really think about what is God's message for us. So every Saturday and every Monday and Thursday, we have a service in which we read a portion of that. Um, so in order to name a baby, ideally, you should come to the Torah and 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 basically recite a blessing and say the Torah is a path for life. God has a mission for us. And once the father accepts that mission, then it's appropriate to name the baby because the naming of the baby is not simply a name that the person is known by, but we believe the word that's the name that's given reflects the the soul mission of that baby. So it's all these values coalescing together. And you do it in a way that's public because it's a celebration for the entire community that a baby is born without any cynicism, without any, you know, it's born with a pure soul. And that means there's new possibility for new hope in the world and new kindness that's brought to the world. I, I love the significance of that. The idea of standing before the word of God when you name a child as if to say, if I'm understanding you correctly, as if to say you're going to find your mission, your purpose um, through these words that have been revealed to us, God's plan for our people of how to live out our life in faith. Yeah, so that's lovely. Now, another related question when you talk about coming to the Torah. Uh, do, would you say, and again, this is mainly for our Christian audience, that the Torah section of the Bible or the word of God, is it elevated above like the the prophets or the writings or do you, do you hold them all at the same level as in God's inspired words to you? Well, I have to say that you just gave me a softball, a spiritual softball. Good. I'm trying. I'm going to hit it out. I'm going to hit it out. So the story is this. We believe that there was no other prophet that ever existed like Moses. The way we look at it is that Moses spoke to God as I speak to you. It was literally like a clear glass. And the words that Moses wrote down in the five books is God's word. We believe the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Samuel, they got the gist. It's like looking through a blurred mirror, but they don't get directly the word of God. Why? As a result of that, 
we believe that the Torah, which is the actual five books, is on a much higher plane than the books of the prophets. That's so fascinating. I'm I'm utterly fat. I've never heard that before in all my studies that have you know taken me into studies of Judaism. And of course, I've studied the Hebrew scriptures for most of my life. I, I don't think I've ever heard that. Really? That demarcation, if you will. Yeah, it's um, actually just to amplify it and make it even stronger is that Judaism has what are called 13 principles of faith. 13 things a Jew should believe in. And one of them is there was never a prophet that ever rose like Moses before. Hmm. And that is so important because if I don't believe that Moses had a relationship with God that was, as we characterize it, and the Bible says face to face, then the Torah itself, the five books, would not have the same eternal value because, I mean, did he get it? Did he know what God was saying? The fact that he could talk to God and God could talk to him as if you're talking to your friend, that gives the Torah its power. So let me, uh, a bunch of questions are spinning around in my head now as, as a result of this. So I guess the first question would be, is God's revelation to us as his people, are you saying at some level it was dependent upon the prophet? Moses or the other prophets, you mean? Well, I'm, just, I'm saying it because it seems like if God wanted to communicate to us his message, yeah, it sounds like in some way he, he was dependent on the messenger. That one messenger could could hear him clearly and deliver it clearly. The others, you know, again, it, it came to them through a, a, a mirror that was imperfect, as you said. So that, I guess that's my question. If God's trying to reveal himself and his words and his plan to us, was he dependent upon those those prophets? Again, you ask a great question. If you go to the book of Exodus, there's a section there that says that really when God first communicated the first two commandments, this is Jewish faith. He said, I'm the Lord, your God, who took you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and you should worship no other idols. He basically was saying directly to the nation of Israel, he was speaking. But what happened was the nation of Israel was not in a spiritual state to uh, hear him without losing a sense of consciousness because it was so um, awe-inspiring. And then basically God decides, you know, that's a loose word because God decides, but then God says, it's too much for the Jewish people to hear my word directly. I will communicate to Moses, who will then communicate to the Jewish people. Okay. So are you saying everything, everything these raising more questions for me, sorry. So the, the communication came through Moses and what? And what would be different? I know you described this. I'm, I'm pushing you a little bit on this, this blurred mirror, perfect mirror. What would be the difference in the way in which he communicated through the prophets? Because I would say he would, he was probably equally, you know, it was equally important that their message get through to the people as well. Uh, it, well, it depends on the, the purpose of the message. Let's talk about this on the next segment, because there's no way that I can summarize all this in the next 15 seconds. But thanks for joining us. Amazing on a special edition, holiday edition of The Rabbi. The Reverend.
Welcome back to the second segment of The Rabbi and the Reverend. We're glad you've joined us here on this New Year's, kind of almost New Year's Eve edition of The Rabbi and the Reverend. I'm joined here by the esteemed Rabbi Daniel Cohen. So good to be here with you, Rabbi, at the end of this wonderful holiday season. And we're, we jumped right into the deep end of the pool, didn't we? Oh, you know what? You you took me over the cliff almost. (laughs) So we're talking a little bit about the word of God. And I asked the rabbi whether or not the Torah section, the first five books of what they would refer to as the Hebrew scriptures and what the church often referred to as the Old Testament. Or is that are those books, the books that are written by Moses, are they elevated to a different level? And the prophets and the writings, the rest of the Hebrew scriptures and rabbis enlightening us that in the Jewish way of reckoning, they are elevated. And they're elevated because he was saying that the way in which God spoke to Moses, and maybe if I could say this, you can correct me if I'm overstepping the line here, that God's, the intimacy of God's relationship with Moses led to him understanding God's words and plans with a clearer vision or a clearer sense than the prophets that came later. You referred to them as he looked into a, per, a, a perfect mirror versus a blurred mirror from the prophets. Not mirror, remember, I would call it a glass. And it's a, it's a clear okay. glass because he's not looking at himself. He's yeah. hearing the word of God directly. Yeah. I mean, part of this, by the way, just to clarify, is based on the notion that the revelation that God gave Moses is a revelation that is timeless and timely is that there was a moment in time when God tasked the Jewish people to be that light into the nations. And this was the roadmap period. Mm -hmm. There's no revision of the Torah. The Torah that God gave 3,300 years ago is the same Torah Mm -hmm. that we put up in Stanford, Connecticut, and we look to for guidance. And in a world, and I think we both would say this, that is morally confused, where right is wrong and wrong is right. And people sometimes are so open-minded that their brains are falling out. The Torah is meant to be a clear path for bringing ethical monotheism into the world. How it's applied to particular generations and how it's used as a way to address certain moral quandaries, certain ethics is up to the particular individual at that time to say, how do these timeless principles apply to this situation? The main role of the prophets was less about giving laws and a manual and was more about inspiring them just to follow the way of God. Yeah. And when it comes to a pep talk, which is kind of what the prophets did, it was less important for them to get every word of God exact. It was more important for God to communicate and said, these guys are off the path. You got to get them on the right road. Tell them what you need to tell them and give them the following images to think about. But it's not that it was, okay, this is exactly the playbook. The playbook was the Torah, the coaching and the inspiring and the, the, uh, the sometimes criticism that was okay. That was, that's, that's, that's the, that's the way the prophets are generally all about. <laughs> and the and the prophecies and the future, giving them hope. I mean, one of the main things of prophets is to say, 
you think you're living in a world now where there is no redemption. There will be redemption. A new light will shine. That's that's so fascinating. I'm fascinated by this. I like the I, I really like the uh the the kind of the metaphor, the imagery here about the Torah being the playbook and the prophets were the coaches of encouragement. Yeah, that's a good one. It's made that up. It's excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Just made that up. Well, it's good because I think that uh that role of the prophet to encourage the people of God to live out the Torah, to be faithful to God, and to help them understand how to live it out. Yeah, was part of their role. So what what differentiates this view of the word of God from the Christian view is is significant. Now I'm going to read to you a passage from 1 Corinthians 13 and this is verse 12 and yep. it also is talking about the word of God and it, it says this, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror and then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And hmm. an older translation says that now we see through a glass darkly or dimly. Where's like, that from? That's from First Corinthians. This was one of Paul's writings. And it's the same kind of concept that our understanding is, you know, that we, we're not going to see perfectly right now. We're not going to understand God's ways perfectly right now. We're not going to understand God perfectly. We have human limitations right now. But one day we'll understand perfectly God's plan and purposes and his word. And that's kind of, that's a, I think that's a gesture towards our human humility and again, our, our human limitations. But what I want to say is within the church, Rabbi, lots of theological wars have been fought over the nature of God's inspired word. Mm. And so the uh, over inspiration and within the church, the language that we use is oftentimes, I don't know if you ever heard this word used called inerrancy. So no, what does that mean? Inerrancy. You know, I've, sp I've spent weeks in seminary learning about inerrancy. And it's this notion that, that when the scriptures were revealed to humanity, because it was God's uh, over, God had oversight over this process of revealing Himself, that there is no error in God's word. It's mm. in error. It's perfect. Yeah. And another word that saw sometimes used, it's not perfectly interchangeable, but synonymous is called infallibility. It's that I've heard of. Yeah. Totally reliable. And I don't know. How are we doing on time? Are we coming to the end of We're this? Almost story? done. So let's okay. pick this up. Yeah, yeah, let's definitely pick it up. I'm telling you, I'm feeling that uh, we're getting a lot of theology today. But let's pick it up on the next, the next segment of this edition of the Rabbi the Reverend.
Welcome back to the third segment of this edition of the Rabbi and the Reverend. We might call this the theology edition. There's a lot going on. I'm telling you, prophecies, Torah, baby namings, it's all there. But um, I'm going to flip it back to uh, the esteemed Reverend Gregory Dahl, who's peppering me with questions. So um, what do you have to say? What's what's next on your mind? Well, you're doing a great job of uh, responding to the peppering. We're talking about the Word of God. At the end of the last segment, I was talking about, you talked about the Word of God being timeless and timely, and 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 we hold those those convictions too. You know, for every generation, it is God's wisdom and instruction from a, a we like to say from a loving heavenly Father that always has our best interest in mind yep. and designed us and wired us and knows what's best for us. And so we we totally get that. But we do talk a little about the Word of God being inerrant and infallible. And so again, there's as I said, those words are are fraught with lots of you know, controversy, because some people say that they're perfectly inerrant, and others say they're just infallible, which means it's reliable, and we trust that what God is, what has revealed to us is what he wanted to reveal to us. But the whole inerrant yeah. is this idea, Rabbi, and I'm driving a point here because I want to ask another question, is they would <laughs> say that every part of it is is equally the word of God. Every part of the, all the scriptures? Oh, yeah, like every jot and tittle kind of thing is equally God's word to us. And so within the Christian world, they might say, yeah, there's some import here in this section, but it's all God's word. And so it's all equally important to us. And they wouldn't, uh, and they wouldn't have, uh, they wouldn't stratify it in any way. Um, they would say that God can also speak through any part of the word that he's revealed to us and that it's, so well, there's a scripture in the testament said that God's word is alive and active, that there's yeah. a, a living kind of quality to it. That still, when we sit down and read it a couple thousand years later, it still has the power to not only to speak to us, but has the power to get into us and do a work of transforming us and sanctifying us and guiding us and all that stuff. So you've put a lot out there, and I want to kind of start from the end and go back to the beginning. Everything that you said in the past 30 seconds, I would agree with that we view the Torah also as speaking to us in a very uh, timely, unique way, and it has the possibility of transformation. At the same time, I think where Judaism is kind of unique in this way is that Judaism has a real clear way of life, which is characterized by the Torah and the 613 commandments. And in order for that to function as a timeless roadmap for life from the jewish perspective there was an opening of that message and there was a closing of that message which is unique it can't be that 50 years later 100 years later we reopen the conversation because it's so focused on action that somebody comes along and this is actually another basic principle that Anybody that wants to detract from the Torah, the five books, or add to the Torah, that's considered heretical. That's it. That's God's commandment to the nation of Israel. And then anybody that comes afterwards, maybe there's a conversation about how do you apply this particular principle or the context of the principle, but you don't say, well, the principle, I'll take it out, and now there's only 612 or there's 611 as opposed to 613. 
what is fascinating and does lead to a lot of conversation within the Jewish faith is, you know, what's biblical, what's rabbinic, what's custom, you know, and and, and the layers of um, what I would say um, the basis for different uh, laws is a very important conversation because, you know, Judaism has a very complex organism when it comes to how do you deal with competing values i'll give you an example on the sabbath you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to uh, harness technology for your own good you have to kind of be as opposed to do we don't get in cars we don't turn on lights and all that but within the torah itself it says that life is most important if somebody has to go to the hospital you get in a car and you drive and that supersedes it mm-hmm. the question becomes of course you know you know, what's considered life-threatening that would allow a person, I'm going deep here, to transgress Shabbat. That conversation is also relevant to understanding the medical uh, system today, understanding different things. So there's all these responses about it, but there's a very clear hierarchy that the five books is unique. The other thing I want to say, and I'm definitely going into a radio show 501 here, Advanced, is that we do believe that when God communicated to Moses, yeah, yeah, sorry. Well, we believe that when God communicated to Moses, he didn't just give him the written law, he gave him an oral tradition. And that's something that was only codified um, 2,000 years ago in the time of the Talmud. But there is the sense that it's not only the written law that was given to Moses, but also kind of an oral communication that goes hand in hand with the written law. Yeah, that's that's we've talked about this before, but I guess it bears repeating because it's fascinating that within Christianity and within certain Christian traditions, there's a there's it's kind of a parallel track. You have I know you have the word of God, uh, the Torah, and then you have the Mishnah. So you have, you have an oral tradition and then yep. you have the whole Talmudic interpretation of both of them. Um, that's the Talmud. But within particularly within like roman catholicism they have holy scripture and then they have holy tradition which is similar that these are i know that well they are they would have been passed down oral decisions uh encyclicals proclamations from popes where at the time they felt inspired and when they spoke it was considered to be you know um I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure you know, they would elevate it to the same level as Holy Scripture, because in the same way as the Holy Spirit spoke to the writers, you know, whether that's that's Moses or that's Isaiah or that's a New Testament writer, um, they would say when the when the Lord spoke to the Pope uh, and the Holy Spirit spoke, it was those words were, you know, considered to be the same level of inspiration. So they also have, you know, twin traditions of uh, revelation within uh, Roman Catholicism. Now, within Protestantism, we do not. This is why in the in the I'm giving you some some history here. But in the Reformation, one of the rallying cries was sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Mm. And and anything outside of scripture was considered to be not not inspired at the same level and shouldn't be elevated to the same level got it wow but now i've learned a lot today this isn't fascinating <laughs> don't test me on it but it, it's amazing how this all started with the conversation about the birth of my granddaughter 
Um, but this reminds me of being in a house of study where you start with one thing and you never know where you're going to end up. So let's uh, let's wrap this segment up on this theological holiday filled baby naming edition of the rabbi, the reverend. Oh, actually, you know what? We're still going. We are still going. Let's keep it going. No. <laughs> this you is the gun, Rabbi. Jump the gun. I was getting confused in the last segment. Well, let's keep on talking. What are the questions you got, by the way? We're in the world. Well, the, of last, the, last, the last thing I wanted to say, which I appreciated because I think this helps me. I, you know, I'm kind of trying to sort all this out in my head and heart here because we do have a difference here, I think, in part of how we understand the word of God. But the whole idea of a hierarchy makes some sense to me that I think what you're saying is, again, correct me if I'm wrong, that it's all the word of God. The Lord spoke to Moses. He spoke to the prophets. So it's his words and they're being, you know, they're being understood and then communicated by those he chose to be these vessels to communicate. But there is a hierarchy to them in terms of importance. And that makes some sense to me. You know, that that does make sense. And it's not like this is not the word of God or any less. It's just there's a hierarchy of importance. Yeah, hierarchy, but it is a reflection that, you know, Moses, it's a hierarchy, but there is a clear notion that what Moses said is exactly what God told him. What Jeremiah says is inspired by God. You know, it's a, the gist of it, but it's still not exactly the same. I got I, the gist of it. I'm, that's where I'm tripping on that. That's definitely a distinction between Judaism and Christianity. Because there, you know, there's this really firm conviction that, like when God spoke, it it was He said what He needed to say, and so He revealed Himself in the way He needed to, used yeah. the people, and it was as clear as it needed to be. Our understanding of it, we may struggle understanding something that was written a couple thousand years ago, but God's, you know, it's it's all God's word. So that's that's. That's really fascinating. I, it think, is, I just want to clarify, by the way, I don't want to use the word just maybe too flippantly. It's more than just the gist. I mean, but it certainly doesn't carry the same weight, um, you know, so fascinating, fascinating. Well, the last thing I was going to say is I think the the order is important, too, that I mean, you had to have the Torah first. You had to have the law given. You had to have that instruction before you could have any any coaches come along right and that's correct you know, that's exactly it no, the playbook first i mean you, what are you going to do if you don't have the playbook right <laughs> that's true if you don't own the playbook you're in big trouble you're right <laughs> Good stuff, rabbi thanks for helping anyway, now now we'll get ready to pick it up thanks for joining on this segment of this edition of the rabbi the reverend Welcome back to uh, 
another segment of this edition of the Rabbi and the Reverend. I have been over and back thousands of years, back to reality, thinking about the theology of Judaism, the Torah, the differences between Christianity and the naming of baby Ruth. Now, for the last segment, Reverend, I'm going to pull you back that glorious day on December 25th at the Roten Presbyterian Church. You're moving your way to the pulpit. I saw that fine picture on Facebook of you and your <laughs> beloved and your three children. What was stirring in your heart? I want to talk less about what exactly you said, mm. but you're stepping into that pulpit. What message did you want the congregation to hear? Well, it's hard for me to, I guess, differentiate no between what I wanted to say and what I said. So <laughs> By the way, no, 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 no. I'm glad you did. But like, I just want to know, like, you know, what was I'm sure what you said reflected your heart. But so what was your what was what was in your heart and what did you say? Yes. Uh, you know, I um, it's interesting. I grew up in the Lutheran church in Ohio and a, and a friend of mine married a guy who was the pa- who was the pastor's son of the other Lutheran church in town. And I remember when we first met and we we're sort of swapping notes about growing up in the Lutheran church. And he said to me on Christmas Eve, we, my dad had a, we had a kind of a tradition in our family that if he preached longer than seven minutes, that we were allowed to open the presents on Christmas Eve. What? He went less than that. If he kept it less than seven minutes, they had to wait until the next morning to open their presents. So that's always stuck with me. So Christmas Eve is very short sermon. Mine are usually about five or six minutes where they're normally 20 to 25 minute sermons. So Christmas Eve is really about, it's a, it's a big celebration. There's lots of beautiful music. And yeah. what we're celebrating is the, 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 you know, we, we believe, I know we differentiate on this. It's, we believe we're celebrating the coming of the Messiah. So it's yeah. a massive celebration for us. And it's like the wheels of, of salvation are now a role and the Messiah has arrived on the human scene. And and then ultimately it'll come to him, you know, his uh, life being offered as a sacrifice so that the, the, the distance that's grown between us and God as a result of our sin can be bridged and we can enter into this life of... Um, of uh spiritual vitality and freedom and and so it's it's a, it's a grand celebration but i told a, i told a funny story in this in this uh sermon or a homily i should probably call it because it wasn't a sermon i told the story about um one of my favorite christmas memories rabbi oh boy when i was about um 20 and my younger brother was 12 and my mother sent the two of us without my dad to cut down the family Christmas tree. Hmm. And so we drove to this Christmas tree farm north of Dayton, Ohio, where we grew up. And there was a guy named Mr. Pritchard. that ran this the name. Farm, probably five foot four, a hundred pounds, bald as a cue ball, probably in his eighties at the time. And just full of vim of vigor. He was kind of had this, he was this cult like figure in our family lore, but get to the story so my brother and i were walking through the rows of christmas trees and at one point 
one of us, I don't remember who it was, came up with this brilliant idea to actually bring home the worst tree that we could find. What? So, yeah. So that we could have a true Charlie Brown Christmas tree. Oh, my gosh. You ever watch the Charlie Brown Christmas story? Uh, I wasn't allowed to, but go ahead. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so in Charlie Brown, he has this this he has this awful tree. So so we searched until we identified literally the most bedraggled, like God forsaken, barren, mangled, misshapen excuse for a Christmas tree on the whole lot. That's what we did. My brother and I. Yeah. And I remember we got into hysterics, you know, trying to think, are we really going to do it? And then we did it. <laughs> and yeah. so Mr. Pritchard sold us this tree. And anyway, we to get to the point of the story, we arrived home and we dragged this tree through the door. And for my mom to consider now, you have to know my mom. My mom is very proper and she wants a proper Christmas tree. And so yeah. she and she had this look on her face when we walked through the door, just like confusion at first, and then just like disappointment. And it was like oh my gosh. two knucklehead sons. And then, bless her heart, I, this is why it's of my favorite memories. She just started laughing, and then eventually, it was just you know, could not stop laughing, crying, laughing, at this Charlie Brown Christmas tree. And then a few minutes later, my brother and I went back to the car and we actually brought out the real tree. Oh, so you brought two trees. We did. We did. That's and, good. And the Christmas, the Charlie Brown one was like consigned to the basement and we decorated it in all kinds of goofy ways over the years. But my point was, and here's my point. I know it's a long way of saying it, but yeah. it's something like 40 years since this memory happened. But it seems like every year Christmas, like my mind keeps wandering back to that particular memory from my childhood and that yeah. humble little tree and it's become more and more symbolic to me of what christmas is all about because it, to me it reminds me and this was the main point i made was that we think christmas is about god sees us like out in the fields of our lives bedraggled kind of bent over beneath the weight and bondage of sin and our mm -hmm. brokenness and pain and grief and the darkness of this world and then he set this plan in motion to to rescue us and to bring light into the world and bridge the distance between us. And it was all motivated by his love. That was my message. That, that was the illustration I used. So Christmas really, to me, is about God's love for us, that he would come and enter our world and rescue us and bring light. That's it. And that's amazing. I just want to say one thing. First of all, I'm always inspired by the uh, alignment of our messages. You know, Hanukkah out of all the other holidays is about bringing light in the darkest of places and knowing that, you know, you can light a Hanukkah candle anywhere that that spark still exists in people and you can bring light anywhere. But we've talked about that too. You know, you go to the place of the most pain. I know you talk about that and bring a little bit of light. So this is a great way to kind of bring it home, you know, as we're closing out this also uh, secular year that, you know, we all need to reflect on, not how we can change the world, but remember that God loves us every day. There's a way that we can bring a little bit of his light to the world. And hopefully in that way, we'll bring great blessing. And speaking of blessing, here we go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you 
and be gracious unto you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Thanks for joining us on a wonderful holiday segment. Happy New Year of the Rabbi, the Reverend.